Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Tony Lane Casserly. Tony Lane has been a core founder at several impactful ventures in the digital currency and blockchain industry, including Cointelegraph, and she is the founder of Culture, a platform and protocol built to create global citizenship through cooperation and evolve the future of government into communities beyond borders. And now to the conversation with Tony Lane Casserly. Hi, Tony, and many thanks for taking time today. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, Tony, I'd like to jump right in and speak about your current project, Culture. Can you describe your vision for the project? Sure. So Culture is really the idea that the way we've thought about organizing our human race for the last, you know, more than 500 years um, since a lot of written history has been fundamentally the wrong way to organize humanity. It's inhuman to say that because we live on this earth, which we have destroyed or is scarce, um, that we will oppress groups of people or populations because there's not enough to go around. But it wasn't always like this. You know, earth provided for us when we cared for her. And the minute that we started destroying the world around us is the minute when we started destroying the well-being of our fellow man. And we're reaching a new equilibrium place where resources are already so overly abundant. If we repurpose food we wasted in the United States alone, we could literally cure global hunger. And it's this, these resources, it's just that these resources are not evenly distributed yet. So what we are working to solve is to reconnect humanity to its purpose through community. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Was there a specific event that made it obvious to you that things aren't going well in today's societies? It's not just today's society. I mean, think about the number of times that men have burned down entire villages, like taking advantage of an entire population of women and children merely to feel like they have ownership over something that doesn't even belong to them. It belongs to the planet. The minute that we started feeling like we own the world is the minute that we started destroying it. And so I don't think this is an example that is merely related to our present day. I think that you can look at the first block in the Bitcoin blockchain for an excellent example of the way the world is going wrong today because Satoshi encoded a message that is, you know, showcasing institutions failing to serve the populations they are meant to in some way or shape or form represent. And that disconnect is actually inhuman because it represents the absence of consciousness, not the truth of consciousness. And that's what separates us from apes. That is what separates us from animals and these other forms of life is that we are living in a different state of consciousness, even though other forms, the grass is conscious in its own way. And there are spirits everywhere. But this is what separates us from when I say apes, I don't mean apes just like the animal apes. I actually mean this deeper 
primal instinct of, you know, like the survival instinct. Mm -hmm. And that's what separates us. So if we want to create that change, we have to encourage a shift in broader consciousness. And through encouraging that shift in consciousness and a shift in the way that we have access to essentially like an infinite matrix of resources, that is what's going to shift our systemic infrastructure and our human relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. And how does blockchain technology come in there with that with that vision? Well, blockchain is able to quantify ownership in completely different ways. And so the blockchain isn't owned by anyone, but the blockchain is managed or moderated by a community. Now, that's not to say that blockchain eliminates ownership, because now that we've gone so far down this path of property, it's going to take a unity consciousness for us to really let go of that and transcend. But it is to say that we are more able to effectively manage both supply chain and systems of ownership. So, for example, if we are seeing that in the United States every year we're wasting $30 billion dollars on excess food production that we could otherwise be investing into other economies, then we would shift the $30 billion dollars worth of waste into perhaps a $30 billion dollar investment in new agriculture systems and growing our human race. When we start to eliminate, once we have an information matrix that is abundant and computers that have the power to process that information, to generate insight and meaning mm -hmm. from, from that raw information or that raw data set, then we will be able to more efficiently and effectively manage our planet and its resources in a way that actually leans closer toward a real sense of stewardship rather than the exploitation that, that we've, we as you know a lot of people and we as a planet have been enduring. And so that's one part of the shift is more effective changing, you know, the, our relationship to information efficiency and inefficiency. Really it's blockchain shift relationship to information asymmetry by providing ubiquitous access through ledgers to every person on the planet. Uh, now for, for, for example, let, let me interrupt there quickly. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great example with the food waste, right? But let's think this through quickly with, with how blockchains yeah. Can, can help there. So you're saying it's about transparency of the information, first and foremost. So what would that look like with this, with this food issue there that you described? Well, it's not merely transparency. It's also accountability. And so you're engaging in something that's totally different. It's a, it's a completely different system of, um, yeah, I mean, it's a completely different system of accountability when you're when you, everyone in the world has access to information. So it is transparency, but transparency is almost a sneaky word because people say I'm being transparent, but a lot of people use transparency to disguise secrecy. And so I wouldn't say it's transparent. I would say it's open source. Mm -hmm. It's a computer language term. When something is open source, everyone in the world has access. When something is transparent, can you see fully through something that's transparent? No, you can't. It's like looking through wax paper. You know what I mean? If it makes something, if blockchain makes information transparent, then it's not actually giving everyone enough clarity to make decisions effectively. It might give systems clarity if you're working on a public-private blockchain intersection, but it's not necessarily giving the people who are moderating the systems enough clarity to really manage those resources effectively on a peer-to-peer -peer level. Now, transparency might mean institutions are saying, we're managing these resources effectively on an institution-to-institution -institution level without giving that database of information to peers, But that actually eliminates the that actually eliminates the effectiveness of, of modern governance. Um, and I believe that if people are inspired and have economic systems that are actually more 
uh, valuable than the economic systems that are created by institutions that are either depriving people of their access to resource or access or opportunity, then people are going to choose the platform that gives them greater access to take ownership, leverage over their resources and of their opportunity in life. Um, and hopefully we have both peer-to-peer networks and peer-to-peer networks run through and by for institutions shifting in that direction. And I, I don't think economically that they have another option. Mm-hmm. To come back to that food example, because I think it's a really, it's a big problem. It's huge. And, but yeah. what is, what is the first step that you would, that you would basically propose there where a blockchain really matters? Well, it's actually already being done. I mean, this is what IBM is doing. It's called the IBM Food Trust. And the article says IBM Food Trust uses blockchain technology to make um, this more, hold on one second, I just, uh, uses blockchain technology to improve transparency, standardization, and efficiency throughout the food supply chain. Um, So it's not only providing information in terms of data, but the opportunity for any person in the world to get involved with their economy. And that's what's going to be integral in creating the foundation for global universal earned income is actually having the private sector open source tasks and work for people to get involved differently in doing the things that they're actually inspired to do. How do you think will the jump happen from information to actually doing something? So it's already happening and it's not just inspired by blockchain. It's also inspired by things like automation. When we have, when McDonald's is installing machines that are doing the jobs for every worker that's there, if you actually look at a map of the United States, this is totally nuts. More than 50% of the United States, their largest employer in every state is Walmart. Yeah. That is nuts. And Walmart is not able to make enough sales to meet margins like they used to because the consumer class of people that are shopping at Walmart are not as big. The margins aren't as big as they used to be because everyone's going online. Everyone's moving to Amazon. And so Walmart is going to need to cut costs at a certain point in some way or shape or form. And likely one of the first costs they're going to cut with with more effective automated labor are going to be the livelihoods of the people that work there. And Walmart is a corporation that in in several different instances has been known for doing this. And so I see that as an inevitable trend. And if that's an inevitable trend, there's going to need to be some form of a support layer for the people that are going to lose the jobs they've had for the last 35 years working at this institution. So automation is going to inspire a shift in the way we think about labor into a process of being a part of a system, just a cog in the machine and a brick in the wall into something that looks a lot more like creative liberation. And that process of co-creation is really the foundation of community economies, which blockchain is built on. Mm -hmm. Cool. I also, I followed the discussion in the Culture Telegram group about the concept of building a society around identity instead of economic interactions. Um, Can you maybe briefly explain how how that works? I'm so glad you asked this question because the smartest people I know still, I feel, still have not figured out the simplest way to solve one of the most talked about problems. Everyone talks about um, reputation in blockchain as you can buy your rep, but that incentive is totally Tell, tell me how that works. You, you can buy your rep. What does that mean? Rep. Like there are, I know at least three different projects that have a rep, REP rep token, and that rep token represents reputation. And to participate on the system, you have to purchase rep. Now, rep is usually really cheap, but it still represents something economic. 
And I think the fact that we're using something that is inherently economic as the foundation of our reputation is something that's out of alignment with a sense of integrity that we need to evolve as a humanity, become more intelligent about each other and ultimately more sensitive to our relationship with 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 time, with resources, and with our general humanity. And that shift will happen actually, strangely, as a subset, I believe, of robots and artificial intelligence taking more jobs so people can have more freedom to actually behave like human beings. The core root of the thing that makes us a human being is our capacity for empathy. In Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, he does actually say extensively the survival of the fittest quote. Survival of the fittest is a dogmatic, interpretation of a scientist's work. They exploited the work of a scientist to fuel a dogma. And when I say they, is there one specific person? No, it was an entire group of people that exploited science to um, for their own survival instinct. But two chapters earlier in that same book, Darwin actually talks about empathy and that groups that were more likely to survive during times of hardship were groups that exhibited the highest capacity of empathy for each other. Now, obviously, this doesn't relate to, in, in some cases, things like bugs or insect, but in, in mammalian species, our capacity for empathy is actually rooted in survival during hardship. And so I believe that we've misinterpreted most of what people perceive to be scientific, quote unquote, fact. And we've relayed this information as a false narrative That's that's been the last century has been the manipulation of a false narrative for the gain of the illusory individual. Um, you can look at McLuhan and McLuhan for positive examples of the use of this medium. And you can look at Bernays, who is the inventor of propaganda for the way in which this medium has been exploited since the early 1900s. So I believe that our relationship to identity is not about self-identification and self-belief and self-radicalization. That's extremely dangerous. But our relationship to our identity is actually a process of the way that we connect to each other. So when I talk about new systems of governance, my thesis is not that governance is structured on economics, because if you think that governance is structured on economics, let's look at economics, okay? You want governance to be equal, and you want governance to be fair, and you want to talk about democracy. But when you talk about democracy and equality in whatever sense you choose, or you choose to talk about equality, if you want something to be fair provably fair. Let's just talk about provably fair. You should not base a system that you wish to be provably fair on a system that is already completely exploited. Economics is a system that is completely exploited. Markets are systems that in some ways are designed to be exploited by selfish people. I, I agree. I agree there with the markets. That's totally true. But economics, that's just incentives, right? Well, yes and no. And depending on whether the incentives work. So this is what I mean by Bernays. So Bernays, I'll give you a little bit of backstory on Bernays. Bernays is the father of, prop, not like modern propaganda, he's the father of propaganda. He like invented the term. He also invented the PC term, public relations, which is what he later coined it as to be accepted by a more mainstream audience. He is the nephew of a man that we know as Sigmund Freud, and we know about Sigmund Freud's work because Bernays mainstreamed it. Now, what Bernays did was he he realized from an insight that his Austrian uncle had that the most effective way to sell products to consumers was to materialize their unconscious traumas and project them into products. So one example was how he got women to smoke, right? The, this, the, one of the largest executives in tobacco came to him and said, listen, we're trying to get women to smoke. We're losing 50% of our target market. And he said, okay, um, well, let me hire the psychologist E.E. E. Burles. He's one of the most famous psychologists in New York, and we'll figure out why women aren't smoking. 
So he hires the Ebrils and figures out that women are being shamed for smoking because the cigarette actually represents unconsciously a symbol of feminine power over the masculine. And that's something that was a, a trigger point for males that made them say women who smoke are unattractive. And so Bernays countered this by hosting this rally and getting women to strap boxes of cigarettes to their legs, these debutantes. He calls everyone in the press and he says, you have to come. There are these debutantes. They're going to be marching. They're holding torches of fire. So he basically led everyone in the press, the executives in the press, to tell the authors what to write and then had them appear with all of their cameras. And these women show up, rip up their skirts, like stick their legs out like the, you know, the girl who's trying to call the car, stick their legs out, rip up their skirts and whip out a pack of cigarettes and start smoking. Hmm. And so that exploitation of an unconscious trauma and later why films represented cigarettes as a symbol of female, the, the female sexuality as a form and a use of power. And that core exploitative symbol has trickled down to like so much of what we see in, in modern media today that is using this, this relationship to um, someone's own, the, the sovereignty of a person's own body and using that as an exploitive tool to sell products. Now that trend is shifting because people are starting to wake up. Um, but they're not fully there yet. So the idea that, you know, economics have been actually exploited because the incentives can be exploited if you can exploit someone's mind because economic systems are human systems. So if you can exploit a person, you can exploit a system. And the way that I'm thinking about governance, the way I'm thinking about identity is how do we make the process of our identity something that is inherently interdynamic and more related to each other because once you have these networks of mutual trust you leave less room for exploitation because you're building human context and you're actually making people develop a greater consciousness through your shared experiences not looking to have experiences with people where you decrease your level of consciousness through the consumption of like drugs and alcohol you're looking to increase that consciousness and that's the way we are designing the standard. Got it. So the incentive then is increasing consciousness. Yes. The open source protocol behind the work at my for-profit company is called Web of Trust. And it's basically the idea that we build a, a trusted network of peers and institutions to steward, verify, and make claims about both an individual's identity and then stewarded on top of that identity is reputation is a process of restoration. Then comes the third tier. Mm -hmm. um, in culture, you also have the concept of universal basic education. Mm -hmm. And I think that sounds really interesting. Can you briefly explain it? So the way that I talk about a lot of, um, a lot of these processes is that it, it shouldn't be universal basic income because universal basic income implies that if you just get money for free, like let's look at so many people in blockchain who made a lot of money early on and spent all of their money on sponsoring parties. When you usually get money and you don't have to do anything for it, you don't value it. Mm. You know, that's not to say everyone did that, but it, it, people don't, a lot, most people, a lot of people don't value money when they get it, when they've had to do nothing for it. But if you create a process of earned income where you have access models that allow you to earn different forms of income in different ways, then you're shifting the incentive layer and you're shifting the process by which people are interacting. Um, so universal basic education is a process it, and it's actually a, a it, it's do you know what um holistic company structures look like or um a holocratic structure can you explain 
So holocratic structures are the idea that hierarchy is a dysfunctional system because you're essentially saying we're going to give the most people the least and one person the most. And that system is um, unethical and exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a holacracy, a holacracy looks almost like like a like a like a sacred symbol. It's a bunch of concentric circles where you have these nodes like blockchains are set up. You have all of these different nodes that you have like a management node and a community node and this node and that node. And you set up all of these different nodes and the nodes are basically teams of these, like these people who are just working together to accomplish a goal. There's not this sense of titling, like here's the CEO and here's the whatever. There are just different groups of people working on different things to accomplish a goal for a project. And so, um, holocratic structures, what was my starting point on holocratic structures? I think because we spoke about universal basic education. Yes. So it's the idea that universal edu- basic education is a, a part of that, but universal basic education comes from being a part of a community. Mm-hmm. And so different communities will offer different forms of education for free to different members that have different economic standing and different levels of trust in different ways for different systems. And if you do have this level of transparency, then you're able to see who effectively needs to get this education for free or who doesn't necessarily need to get this education for free, but really needs to learn this new skill and wants to use this new skill to give back to the community. And so it's really this process. We're changing the model of ownership to stewardship. I mean, to talk about education, even just holistically, like I, I dropped out of college the minute I was told that I might have to take out a loan because I said, why in the world would I pay for something that should be free to me? Why am I working for a piece of paper so I can sit in a corporate job at L'Oreal for the next seven years and maybe like, you know, gain an executive position one day where I'm going to be in, in the, this, the great ivory tower of feeling like, I have a sense of self-identity because I'm a part of something that I didn't create. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the problem is that people feel like their self-identity is related to things that they don't create. They feel like their self-identity is related to their trauma. And when you're living through a world where self-identity is related to trauma, we're creating these ex- exploitive thought bubbles where people are basically communicating only with their subculture or only with their in-group without actually having meaningful conversation from within a world of other intelligent beings um, who, who might want to teach them. And I believe that the way that we start expanding this capacity for connection is by sharing mutual experience. And the number of people who want to create and who want to share mutual experiences are many. But the amount of uh, information we have to connect right people to right place is actually more scarce than I think some would imagine. Mm -hmm. But with universal basic education, where does blockchain technology come in there? Uh, So in many different ways, just like anything else, like universal basic education isn't going to be provided by a chain. I don't think it should be provided by one chain at this point, mm-hmm. um, because if it is provided by one chain, I think we're right back in the system that we're trying to change. It's the same thing with things like universal basic income. It's like saying Bitcoin will give everyone universal income. Okay, except Bitcoin is owned. The majority of the Bitcoin blockchain is owned by 17% of people. So pretty sure that that's not universal um, because you're not able to give every person on the planet the opportunity to own something universally. We don't have the opportunity for people to own universally in blockchain infrastructure if it's economic because economics are not equal. We're not starting in an equal playing field and thus it's, it's not going to be equal and it won't evolve to be equal. And we don't necessarily want equal. 
right? And it will nece- it, it might necessarily not ever be equal until we, unless we transcend into a form of unity consciousness. But at least we can hope and work for things to be fair. And for, for things to be fair for an entire society. And I think that's really, I, I think before we reach a higher state of consciousness, that being fair is really the level at which we need to gain an understanding for. And so uh, I think the fairness starts with both having a, you know, peer-to-peer stewardship and from within that diverse economic opportunity. So universal basic education is not going to be provided by one community. It's not going to be provided by one school. It's not going to be provided by one piece of infrastructure. It's not going to be provided by one blockchain app or infrastructure or protocol or economy. It's going to be provided by networks of these things working holistically to establish something greater for all. And then testing in between those to understand what works for what person, when, and where, because different people learn differently. And for some, universal basic education might actually be a process of going out into the world and experiencing something. Mm-hmm. You don't get an education on how to be a photographer by sitting in a, in a lecture hall and, and telling someone teach you how to take a picture. Like, it's cool to know how to use the camera, but great photographers get out there and shoot. They get out there and take the photo. That's what a great photographer does. It's good to know how to obviously how to use the equipment, which you could learn how to do online. But if we're talking about the future of work being something that's informed more by our ability to create than it is by our ability um, to be like a cog in a system or to be someone who's this kind of like process is still going to be super important. Everyone's going to need to have their own process. I'm not saying let's eliminate structure in pursuit of creative, like creative liberation. If you've ever met a creative professional, they're very structured. They're very yeah, structured true. and they have to be to be that. Tell me about it. So I'm not I'm not saying let's eliminate structure in the pursuit of some form. I'm saying form is a form of structure. You have to have structure to enable form. But the way in which we enable that form, I believe for a lot of people might be a bit more experiential than we could imagine. And for those that want to continue to ingrain themselves in, you know, education as whether it's academia or science or research there's definitely still going to be a, there's definitely still going to be a a room for that and space for that. And there will still be a market for that. But I think what we're really changing is the amount of people that we're able to liberate, to live the life that they actually want to live in this world. Most people don't necessarily want to go to college. If they knew, if people didn't feel ashamed about not going to school, how many people do you think would stay in school? So I believe that the way we think about education as a whole will also shift because the current education system is also completely perverse and totally exploitative. The idea that we are charging people more than the mortgage for their house and their car to go to college, 25 year olds now, it's like when you were 25, maybe like when our, you know, two generations ago, you already had a mortgage on a house. You already had like your car taken out. You were getting loans for your car that you knew you were going to be paid off. And now you're a 25 year old and you're so deep in debt that you're working a job and you're like, I'm so, I've already spent my house mortgage and my car loans on my college debt. Yeah. It's crazy. In the US at least. Yeah. Yeah. If I get a house or a car, I'm, I'm going to be in debt for the rest of my life. And that's the reality that most people from my generation have lived in. And I, I do think that is oppression. It's not political oppression. It's not, you know, it's, it's a form of economic violence, though, from which people don't understand that they actually have 
another route because there's there's so much not only social shame but institutional shame you can't it's very hard for you to apply for a corporate job and get a corporate job if you dropped out of school i should know because mm-hmm. i dropped out of school and i applied to 4000 jobs that's not an exaggeration i did not get a single i did not get a single interview i applied for 4000 jobs what kind of jobs were those any literally i was on for a year right? For the last year that I was in college, I was applying for jobs for a year. And I didn't get a single, whether it was like some random agency, some like small 20 person shop, like whatever, it didn't matter what kind of company it was, like whether it was in like marketing, advertising, communications, like I was applying to every company that I could possibly humanly apply for. But I couldn't, there was no way that I, I mean, we, I still, there were still people that I went to college with that were in their graduate program getting an advertising degree that were still working an unpaid internship. Yep. Yeah. It's it's always interesting. You know, people say, yeah, college is expensive and I'm so in debt now, but I have the degree. But the most important thing is still what I learned from my friend, yep. you know, when you said you should do it this way. And that's actually what shaped my life. Yeah. Um, in, in culture, how many people are collaborating on this project? You know, it varies because there are certain people who come in and they say, hey, you know, I have the summer off from school or like I'm taking three months to travel in Thailand and I just want to build stuff. And I'm like, great, come join, come be a part of stuff. Let me connect you with people that you can stay with in Thailand. Let me help you figure out this situation. And let me actually, if you want to be a part of our community, let's figure out a way to get you ingrained in community. If that's what you like to do, if you want to live by yourself, that's obviously your, that's your personal decision. And I totally both respect and completely 150% support that. It's not the answer for everyone. I know some friends who that would drive totally bonkers, uh, but that's, you know, it's, it, it varies and it changes. Like there, there are so many people, there are people who come in and they say, I don't ever want to leave. And we say, well, let's figure it out. And there are people who come in and they say, you know, I want to do this one specific project. Like I'm really specifically passionate about making this one thing happen. And if I can make this one thing happen, like I'm going to be so thrilled. So it varies. Like there's so much, this is such a big work of art that it really takes, it takes a lot of, and it's not only a lot of people, it's not quantity of people, it's quality of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the right people to make it happen in the right way. Mm -hmm. How do you plan to roll out the project, you know, on a larger scale? That is something I'll be happy to talk to you about in our next interview, um, because I would rather be able to, we have, we have work, our, it's, we're in progress right now. And so I want to put a loading bar status on this yeah, because sure. when I really, I really want to talk to you about this when I have something for you and for every, our audience to, to play with and to really be able to give you the gift of that experience instead of merely explaining it to you. But if you are, are any, who's listening to this wants to learn more, um, you're welcome to join the Telegram group at t.me slash culture is future, which also contains the link to our Discord channel, um, where our Discord channel is more comprehensive and and more people are actually, this is the channel that we've organized for more people to talk about actual building. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And we'll put a link of that channel also in the description here. Um, When will you know that the project has achieved the vision? that you have? Uh, well, if I can help one person live the life they want to live, then maybe my life will have meant something. 
So I don't really look at it as this process of like my big vision to change the world, which is what I I think everyone wants to hear that. Like everyone wants to hear, I'm going to do this thing that's going to change everything. And people are like, ah, changing everything is worth so much. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And like, yes, we do want to, it's, it's more that I see change coming and I want to steward and facilitate new infrastructure to be able to help people live happier lives through the systemic evolution that is already taking place amongst many different people. Uh, so I just really want to help people be happier and I want to help people connect with more people and more community and build stronger relationships and better projects and more empathy with each other by forging environments where we are actually gaining the ability to be more deeply human and more deeply true. And I think that will change the incentives of a lot of things, whether it's how a company is built or whether it's, um, yeah, I mean, whether it's how a company is built or, or anything, um, whether it's, whether it's how we live, you know, and that is the, I, I, I want everyone in the world to have um, a sense of home and of community, of family, of connection, of, of shared experience, joy, and meaning, meaning making, um, anywhere they are in the world. And so that's what we're, we're doing. Um, you mentioned before, you mentioned Bernays. Now, in your view, what is the role of the media in this current state of the world that we're in? Uh, so the media is a factory of illusions that's centrally owned and built to exploit people. I mean, I started my business in media, um, but I didn't start in media because I was interested in running media. I started my business in media because I studied propaganda theory and I wanted to create a platform that could change the way we thought about these systems. Um, so the first project, there's a video I have online. It's ironically titled how to media, how to move a million hearts and make a million smiles or something like that. And I spend the entire time talking about, um, journalists getting murdered and human rights violations and our ability to shift our ability to shift these incentives into, um, a new system, something similar to, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book snow crash, but I didn't read no, the book snow crash. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a Neil Stevenson book. It's in like, he has a very crypto economic science fiction view of the future. Um, and he's an incredible science fiction author, well known for snow crash in the diamond age. Um, I would read Snow Crash. I would just suggest that everyone read it just as a baseline if you're interested in science fiction. But I didn't read Snow Crash until three or four years after I had actually created the concept that I had been working on, which I now have a few companies that I work with that are working to build, which is basically shifting the information model out of consolidation and into um, stewarded marketplaces that can build group coherence around um, unifying separating both fact from fiction and unifying consensus around what is quote unquote true. Because if you look at something that's true, it's usually all media at this stage is opinion. So if all media is opinion, how can we design a front end that inspires us to uh, have people from totally different backgrounds coming together to share and reach some form of common consensus on fact or agreement and to find those release the release, those pressure points in some positive but productive ways, not in ways that just release pressure artificially. Mm -hmm. And then how do we create a back end that can protect whistleblowers to upload information anonymously for an economic incentive? 
So how do we give someone like Edward Snowden the ability to not endanger his life and well-being forever by releasing files that he finds about the exploitation of an entire citizen population and then some? So the real platform that I was, the real platform that was, you know, I wanted to create was based on um, honoring anonymous incentives for whistleblowers to remain anonymous, work through a network of trust and actually upload information that needed to be shared for media to actually do its job for journalism. Let me rephrase for journalism to actually do its job. We live in a world where there's a minutia of people that actually give a rat's whatever about journalism. And most journalism is, is paid for it. Like the number of people, I've had five people reach out to me this week. It must be like, I don't know if it's like Christmas and everyone's like trying to get more gifts. And so they're reaching out to people, but I've had people reach out to me saying, I want to write about you. And then kind of like, almost like wanting me to bribe them. Hmm. And I'm like, no, I will not. I will not give you money to write a story that is so unbelievably unethical, damaging, and wrong to any person who who, who represents any sense of credibility in your profession and in your industry. You should be ashamed. Hmm. You're not a journalist. You're a con artist and a thief. I'm sorry that was strong, but it's really how I feel. Well, it happens. So all the time. that's how I feel, and that's that's actually the point, the tension point for me that made me want to go out there and build build something like this. So I have a few companies that are working on it now, and if anyone else is working on it, it's something that I'd love to talk about because it's a it's a very deep passion of mine uh, to reincentivize liberation through um, cryptography realistically. And I, I think that's the closest tool we've had um, to actually encouraging political liberation, maybe in the last century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Interesting. I mean, you just mentioned this um, pay to play ethos that, that many people have. And, and I just wanted to, to ask one thing about that, because you also co-founded Cointelegraph. And, and of course, you know, in the whole crypto and blockchain space, um, it's quite common that, you know, people pay for this or that coverage and, and it's part of people's media plan to roll out. So well, what is their media plan? That's how, why do you, I mean, that's one of the reasons that is how they run their media Yeah, and I don't appreciate it. Yeah. But, but how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Well, I mean, I, I'm not there. How do I reconcile? I don't encourage it. I mean, I have people that are messaging me on LinkedIn saying that they've spent $250,000 on an article wow, that's crazy. and I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's completely and totally like this is not that's that's no longer at this point. Like there's a level at which you just need to brand yourself as it just you, this is ads. Yeah, this is not this is not news. You can't brand yourself as representing news and information because mm -hmm. you're not representing information. You're representing capital interests. So don't pretend to represent information. I mean, I have the reason why I mean, I have firsthand experience within and of this. Um, and so, I mean, I can get into it, but I think I've said all I need to say. And, and it's true. I just, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a pet peeve of mine because, you know, it's kind of sad that in, in a technology that is so important and so transformative, most of the information that many people get is actually just ads in disguise. It, it's either an ad in disguise or it's a purchased capital. It's a bribe. It's either an ad or it's a bribe. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And that's just being being aware of that is why I no longer engage in, I do not engage in news media. I do not read the news. I do not engage in the news. If I want to know something and I want to learn about something, I will get on a plane. I will find the person I want to talk to and I will learn about that thing firsthand. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Do you think um, at some point there will be some kind of revolution? 
you know, where incumbents and maybe people who benefit from the current paradigm will just say, this can no longer go on, that, you know, people reinvent and, and start, you know, destroying our revenue channels. We have to do something about this. People say the revolution will be decentralized, but they're missing the point of why people are interested in blockchain. It's not that the revolution will be decentralized. Blockchains aren't decentralized. The revolution will be economic. That's it. You create better economic incentives for someone to have a job, for a politician to leave their job as a politician and do something else where they're going to make more money and they're going to have just as much influence and get just as much whatever, then they will leave that job. Create better systems. You don't make an existing system obsolete by attempting to destroy it, to fight it, to throw rocks at it, to kick its shins. You make an existing system obsolete by building something that is fundamentally better. So that's what we have to do. Yeah, good point. Do you ever get some pushback from from anyone with your projects? No, I mean, what do you, what kind? What do you mean by pushback? Well, for example, you know, um, there's people I know. They said they got calls, you know, from the NSA, for example, and said, you know, you you can't do this. No, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm the opposite. Listen, I spent most of my life working with anarchists, so. I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain it's, I don't even know how to explain this. It's kind of like, don't really worry about stuff like that. When the here around people that are kind of like setting fires and pissing on them at, with every step they take, you know what I mean? It's like, there's this other, like, I don't know. And not all, I'm not, and I don't want a dog because I think most people, so let's, let's really quickly talk about anarchy, which is a very misunderstood theory. People believe now, now, People believe that anarchy is basically like, you know, burn the system down, throw some Molotov cocktails, let's set off some bombs and let's say like everyone be free and just let's all live in chaos and break into abandoned houses and sleep on the floor, um, which is like the cool. That's I mean, the last part of that's like the cool part of of anarchy is saying like we don't need the system to live like we're going to build a life outside of the system. And it's the subculture of anarchy that's actually really interesting. I find violence to be abhorrent. So violence isn't interesting to me and I don't like engaging in violence, but violence and anarchy aren't tied together. And there are a lot of anarchists who identify as anarchists or voluntarists who say that anarchy has an image that's too closely related to violence. And voluntarism is the idea that we just want to live in a world where people voluntarily engage in what they want to engage in and do not have to engage in what they do not want to engage in. So voluntarism was really, it is spelled like voluntaryism, was really this uh, like another, it was like a branch of a subculture that spawned off of theories of anarchy that could create a more harmonious brand name for a movement that whose very nature is, is so threatening to institution that it's obviously it's it's obvious intentions are immediately exploited um and so there are quantities with the people who are involved in anarchy however actually exploring anarchy volunteerism libertarianism any anything you'd like to explore as a political theory i would suggest that people i, I mean you don't have to take interest in exploring political theory if you have no interest in engaging it but the way that a lot of groups are structured are inherently based on forms of organization. And so I look at political theory as just one form of organization. And I just really went down the far other path um, before reaching this kind of harmonious. I went down both roads of exploring what these worlds are like and I've just found myself in this um, really healthy equilibrium. But I, I think that there's a big misunderstanding from a lot of people about what anarchy is 
Um, and, and the idea that a person represents the community of anarchy or that a person's actions represent the community of anarchy are actually completely out of alignment with the entire political ideal mm-hmm. in and of itself. Yeah. And so um, I think that there's now am I do I personally politically identify in this way? No, I'm way more in I, I personally identify in a way that is more um, uh, more indigenous than it is artistic, um, because I more believe in our relationship, our, our harmony with the earth and, and harmony with our fellow man. And that's the system that I use to structure. I still, I mean, I, I believe in sovereignty, but from more of the indigenous perspective and less of the, you know, fight for sovereignty against, against the person who wronged you. It's more saying that we're also caring about the earth as a sovereign person. And we are looking sovereignty as a process of it's, it's collective sovereignty and collective unity and global stewardship of the planet and its people. And so I'm far more, my, my political views are actually, I think, far more spiritual and far more indigenous than they are identifying with this other end of the spectrum. But I have to say, it's a very, when you're entering into a system where every person in the new system is, is understanding the baseline of free markets as the structure for the world, similar to the way Bill Stevenson perceives like his, his future societies, that economics are the foundation and the root of the way the world is structured. Um, you have to really, I, I, I really wanted to, like we were talking about education, I really wanted to experientially understand where these different communities were coming from and, and what were the commonalities, what were the behaviors, what were the similarities, where were the connections, where was the overlap? And how can you, regardless of what community you're working with, um, how can you create new, how can you create new unity, even if people believe even if people believe completely different things and see the world in completely different ways, um, how can you find a way to create maybe not a full bridge, but how can you find a way to create little bridges? And from creating those little bridges, how can you encourage a deeper sensibility around our shared humanity and 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 the shared humanity that we should feel and experience with and for our planet? Mm-hmm. Cool, um, Tony. Who are your role models? You know, okay, this is actually a really rough question um, because I I don't actually know. Like, there are some strong women that I really, I've never, like, here's the weird thing. I never really, like, looked up to someone. But I, I've never really, I've always lived my life in a way where I've been my own master. And I think that's why I was so... I hung out with so many people in these different groups is because I didn't grow up with parents who told me what to do. I grew up in a, in a house basically by myself because my parents were always traveling. I've taken care of myself generally in a lot of different ways in my whole life. And so I never lived in this world where I had a master or an authority or even perceived teachers as, as authority figures. Um, the, t- the teachers were my friends And they were people that I hung out with and engaged with. And so I guess that because I've lived so much of my life with this philosophy of self-mastery, there are actually a lot of beings that are, um, I would say most of the people that I admire are actually spirits. Um, And the spirits that I admire, the spirits that I admire aren't necessarily present on this earth that might sound really strange and i'm sorry if you don't know what i am talking about uh i i wish that you know in some ways i think it would be it would be amazing to have people 
embrace this, this level of, of consciousness. Um, and in other ways, I'm just letting humanity evolve as it's evolving because what is in my control, um, I'm just kind of engage, responding to life as it happens. Um, but there are a few women who I really like, I, I admire Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. Um, I admire young Beyonce. Like there are, there are some really strong, powerful, I admire Eleanor Ostrom. Um, even though I haven't probably been as deep in her work as, as many other people have, um, there are many people who I admire and I have a great deal of respect for. I also want to throw it out there that not all of the people I admire are women. There are a ton of men who are my friends and women who are my friends that I admire. I try and surround myself with people I admire because then we become better people together. And it is that, it is that admiration that I think is that's, that's the foundation for a form of love is admiring. Um, I think my greatest, I, my greatest sense of admiration is for the invisible world. And then for humans, it's a, it's my human relationships. It's a, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of, uh, admiration. And so I think that I, I, that might be different for me than many other people. And that's not to say that there, I, I don't have a great sense of respect and that I feel I can learn so much from people. Um, but I find that most of my work is, um, yeah, I mean, most of my work is, uh, or most of what I admire is not something most people can present. And I am okay with that. And I, I love human beings for being human beings and, and, you know, making their mistakes and growing and learning and being who they are. And, and most of all, I love when humanity, um, is, is good to itself and um, when it really reaches a higher state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Cool. Tony, what are you learning at the moment? Oh gosh. I mean, what I was really just talking about um, I'm learning more about what, I mean, I'm not under the impression. I, I kind of am just, my friend said it really well the other day and I wish I could rephrase him, but he says, I'm really just sitting and seeing what comes to me and in exploring what comes to me, then I can understand what I am, what I am attracting or what I am supposed to attract. And so what I'm learning is largely what comes to me. I'm not learning as a process of forcing myself to understand new knowledge or as, you know, reading a lot of books. I have to tell you this. A lot of people are shocked when I say this. I don't really read. Um, I read science fiction pretty exclusively. I don't read really nonfiction books. I read white papers. I write um, but I do not really, I do not really read a lot and I do not really sit down when I'm learning something. I want to learn a process or I want to have an experience that can teach me something where I want to do something. Um, and maybe I just learn differently. I used to be an avid reader. I read through like the whole library when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, and I used to be a deeply avid reader, but at a certain, at a certain point, I think that there was this moment where I just decided that the way I wanted to learn was by doing. And I just started doing. And so what I'm learning right now is I'm, I'm learning more from what is, is coming into my path. And I am uh, learning how to be better at 
calling experiences or situations in. And I am, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm learning as I go. I think, I think we're always learning. I'm learning from every person who's around me at all times. And I think if we really, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're always learning and, and growing and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very honored to be doing the work that I'm doing. And even though I, I want to circle back and say, even though I mentioned this one meditation that I have, that there are, there is, it's, it's not, it's not one person that I love over any other person. It is that it is the, all, all of the light and all of the goodness um, that that is the endless compassion of the invisible world, and that is my role model, and that is what I admire, and that is who I want to be. I want to be the endless compassion of the invisible world because it's a state and it's an energy, and so that's that really is. Um, is, is the thing I, I, I give one popular example to provide or one example to provide clarity, but I, I don't want to give that example in a way that prioritizes that example over the unbelievable stewardship of the cosmos to our planet. Um, Tony, what is in your view, what is one action that everyone can do today to build a better world? Be a better person. I mean, that's the easiest thing you can do. Just be a better person. Notice if someone's not having a good day. Notice if there's someone who's struggling to get a door open because they're holding like six containers of coffee. Notice these things. Just just notice people. Notice where they're at. Notice what they're doing. And just be a good person. Be kind. Be considerate. Love yourself more. And in turn, love others for who they are. Just love. And once you reach that place in yourself, you, you want to share that. You want the world to experience that state. And so, yeah, I mean, I would just say that the best thing that you can do to make an impact on the world is to first impact yourself and then impact yourself to be a better person. And then when you become a better person, start positively impacting the lives of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. Um, do you think you'll still work with blockchain technology in five years? Yes, I do. What makes you so sure? I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked a lot of the companies that I picked if I thought they would have been gone in five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, good point. Uh, Tony, did I forget to ask anything? You know, was there anything you wanted to add that would wrap something up or compliment something that you did you mentioned? That's a really good question. I just want to say that I hope uh, every person who's out there or every person who's listening, um, that I, I don't know you and I haven't met you yet. Hi. Um, I hope good things for you. And I hope that if you're going through something right now, that you know that everything is going to be okay. And if you're not, I'm glad that you are doing well and I hope that you are happy and that you are enjoying your life. And if you are not enjoying your life, get up and move and do something that you love. Don't just do it because you feel like people will enjoy it. Do it for you. And when you are living that joy for you, 
you will expand that joy like a field to the world around you. Fantastic. Tony, where can people find you? Uh, my, my telegram is the same as my Twitter. It's Tony Lane C at T-O-N-I-L-A-N-E-C. And the link to our telegram group is t.me slash culture is future, which is also the same as our Twitter handle. Cool. Tony, this was really great. Thanks a lot for taking time. Yeah, thank you so much for, thank you for the time. Thank you for listening. And I'm, I'm so, I feel so um, happy that you had me on today. So thank you for, thank you for your time and for being so wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening. <laughs>